1: I'm Stan Friedman, and this is Franchise Today. And here we are in the early part of Season 13 and year four of me producing and hosting the podcast solo. And what a better time than that to take a quick trip down memory lane and revisit some of the history that brings us to the start of season 13. Franchise Today's roots go all the way back to July 9th of 2009, a Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern, when Paul Segreto greeted the audience for the first time from what was then the premiere of a program called Franchise Essentials, this at a time when podcasting was just really coming into its own. Then, the show's focus was on the exploration of the early stages of blogging and franchising and the integration of social media into the mainstream marketing of franchise brands. Shortly thereafter, Paul rebranded the podcast Franchise Today and hosted, co-hosted, and produced the program both as a solo act as well as with co-hosts and producers that in those early days included the likes of the Franchise King, Joel LaBava, and social media content creator and blogger, Joe Caruso. Then, in September of 2015, while hosting and producing a podcast of my own called Sensible Franchising, it seemed sensible to both Paul and me to join forces and put a new spin on Franchise Today, co-hosted and produced by us both. Paul and I continued on that track for just under four years, at which time Paul found the focus of his business shifting more toward working with potential franchisees than with franchisors, while the Franchise Today audience consisted predominantly of emerging zors and industry executives. So, on January 9th, 2019, Paul made the pivot and invited me to go solo, taking over the reins of Franchise Today. Now, here we are kicking off Season 13 of the program and Year 4 for me as solo producer and host, and to help me do so from way down under. We will be joined today by none other than the founder of the Franchise Relationship Institute, Greg Nathan. A quick break, and I'm back in two minutes or less with the iconic Greg Nathan.
0: Franchise Today will be right back, but first, a word from our sponsors.
1: Hey, franchisors of restaurants, bars, grills, and taverns and multi-unit franchisees, listen up. This message is for you. Atmosphere TV wants to help you cut costs on overpriced cable TV for your business and either replace it completely or partially if sports programming is essential at your locations. What Atmosphere TV provides are 100% Greg Nathan is the founder of the respected Franchise Relationship Institute and recognized as the global thought leader on the psychology of franchising. He's been a registered psychologist for 35 years and is regularly invited to deliver keynote addresses at franchise conferences around the world. Greg's books, such as Profitable Partnerships and The Franchisor's Guide to Improving Field Visits, are regarded as essential reading for anyone who works in the franchise sector. His numerous franchising models, such as the franchise E-Factor and the franchising wheels of excellence are all based on empirical research and have helped shape the way franchising is conducted around the world. Greg's works were not very well known on this side of the planet until Y2K, and as he'll tell you during the interview, that all changed in part thanks to the late Rupert Barkoff and, yes, yours truly, Greg Nathan. Welcome to Franchise Today. Hello,
2: Stan. It's a pleasure to
1: be here. This is a long overdue event. I can't believe we've allowed so much time to lapse without actually doing this. we see each other at the convention at IFA each year, I always say, hey, we should have you on the podcast. And then you go back about your busy life and I go back about mine, and we let the distance between us kind of keep us apart. And I'm happy to have the occasion of starting the 13th season of Franchise Today with you as my honored guest. And we're going to get into a great conversation today about the world of COVID-19 as you've seen it, maybe in a bigger way than a lot of the audience across many brands, many concepts, and franchise organizations on many continents. So while we've all had a taste of this, I think you've seen a good bit more of it than most. We're also going to look ahead and some of the trends that you're thinking about that should emerge post-COVID, but we must begin the way I always do and that's to ask you to explain to us where it was and when that franchising discovered, Greg Nathan.
2: Well, I was at university studying to be a psychologist and I had a part-time job with a bakery chain which was company owned. They had 12 and uh, i used to go in early two o'clock in the morning i'd bake bread and i'd help out set up the shop and then i'd go home have a shower have a bit of a sleep and head off to university and so i was in a bit of a rhythm doing that and the company started to franchise which i i didn't know what that was all about but um, occasionally i would be called on to help out with a franchisee rather than a company store and i found the franchisees to be amazingly refreshing and i built a bit of a relationship with some of them i used to Manage their stores during the break, the university break. And one of them offered me a partnership to come in to 20%. And he was about to open his third store. And that's when I, I moved from being a manager or an employee to a franchisee. And that opened up a whole another world of the business to me at that and point.
1: this would have been in what part of Australia? This was in Melbourne. And I was studying, I was
2: actually doing a PhD at the time in psychology. I was, I was also had taken on this partnership with the franchise. And I had a crossroads as we do in life. We have these crossroad moments where you've got to make a big decision. And I realized that I wasn't going to be able to run these three businesses and finish my PhD. And I, I had to sort of decide what, what am I going to do? And I thought this business, this franchising side of things is really interesting. And I could see a, a future for myself more in business than in, in the academic sphere. So I had a meeting with my PhD supervisor. He was devastated. I told him I wasn't going to continue and I threw myself into the business. And what I found, Stan, was the relationship that I started to have with the franchise or company was quite strained <laughs> at times. And when I needed help, often I felt they weren't giving me the right sort of help, you know, whether it was in marketing or you know, I had some ideas around product development and so on. And then at other times, they would try and boss us and tell us we had to do certain things like they were trying to manage us. So it was this weird relationship of sort of like a pendulum at times we felt we were being controlled and at and other times we were thought we were being left too much to yeah. our own devices. And when I raised this with the company, they just looked at me with blank faces like, we don't know what you're talking about. And I said, there's got to be a better way where we get more consistency in our relationship. So that was my experience as the franchisee, but it got me thinking around, there's something not quite right in how this relationship is being managed and the people who are meant to be leading don't seem to know what they're doing. And I was actually offered a position with the the head office, with the corporate office as a regional manager. And so I sold my shares with my business partner, and I thought, Oh, I'm going to show them how to do things. But what I found was when I got into the franchisor role, I started falling into the exactly the same traps that the franchisor had been doing with me, trying to over control the franchisees when I really wanted something done quickly, and at other times seeing them as a nuisance. And I reflected one day and thought, There's a, it's almost like a play, and people, you know, take on roles in the play and fall into a certain behaviors. And I thought, I need to to get above this and understand what's going on, we need to rewrite the script. And so I started to look for courses and books that would help me to understand this relationship and how it can be done a better way. And there was nothing, Stan, that I could find. And that's when I decided that I would set up a business to research what does best practice look like and based on evidence, not just based on my personal experience, all that, that was helpful, but based on the experience of, of hundreds of of companies and so on. And so for 10 years Stan, this was in 1989, I set out to really understand the franchise relationship from the inside out.
1: How many years did you spend on the multi-unit franchisee side before you changed gears?
2: I was in there about 18 months, and then I worked for the franchise or for about uh, six years.
1: So you had a fairly good taste from both sides of the business, Mm -hmm. and I kind of mused here as you were sharing your story. You sounded very much like a typical franchisee, and you also sounded very much like a typical franchise or <laughs> So you kind of validated to yourself from personal experience, the need for what you've done with the Franchise Relationship Institute and how much further down the road was it that you began that? And did you ever get back to school? Do you get your master's in psychology? Yeah, well, did look, I,
2: I did have my master's at the time and, and the, the master's, the educational equivalents in Australia and America are a little different. The master's is actually equivalent to, to many of the PhDs in America. And the PhD I was doing was actually like a postdoctoral course. So I was very well Academically qualified and very well trained and what I did Stan is in 1989 when I set up the business to really understand franchising better I then almost went back to school and I started attending psychological workshops to go deeper into particularly in the relationship side of psychology and then I started to merge the psychological understanding what I've been trained in my research disciplines with what I was observing in franchise companies so there's not a formal discipline called franchise psychology, but that's kind of what I was doing, specializing in, because psychology has around 16 separate sub-disciplines. You can do performance sports psychology, there's educational psychology, there's coaching psychology, and so on and so on. I guess I've started a field called franchise psychology. I think it actually
1: deserves it. I think that you filled a void that could help explain so many of the commonalities that we see. They're predictable, right? Because you've discovered through science how to manage the behaviors that can correct the problems that would otherwise be inherent in the business model. The business model itself is a dichotomy, right? What do you mean a, a dichotomy? Well, I mean, it's supposed to be an interdependent relationship, but it's managed so heavily by documents that mandate and dictate things that you can almost fall into that trap of feeling over-controlled and being the over-controller instead of the synergies of interdependency, which are supposed to be born out of the relationship. So the dichotomy to me is like a one-way drafted document that goes governs in a relationship that's supposed to be interdependent. Right.
2: I would call it a trichotomy because one of the models that I've landed on, and I use this quite a bit in our teaching, is the three-legged stool. Now, I know McDonald's has a three-legged stool where they talk about the three partners, you know, suppliers, franchisor, and franchisee. But my three-legged stool is more about the nature of the relationship. So there is a legal leg there that's very important And it's vital that there's clarity over the obligations, otherwise you're going to get chaos if people are not clear on their formal obligations and roles and obeying the law and obeying the franchise regulations in whatever state that you're operating and so on. But as you're alluding to, you can't run a business based on legal documents. There's another world, which is called the world of money and commerce and marketing and so on. So I I call that second piece, then the commercial leg. And that's the reason why companies decide to franchise. And it's the reason why people decide to become franchisees, because they want to achieve certain things in life. And that takes money. The company wants to expand its footprint. It wants to protect its brand. So we've got all those issues around profitability and brand protection and looking after customers. And that's really what's driving the business. So the legal and the commercial need to work together. But what I've found is you can have the best legal documents in the world and you can have the best commercial strategy in the world. But if the franchisees cross their arms and say, we don't want to do it, you got nothing. And that brings us to the third leg. And I call that the psychological leg, which is all about, is there trust in the relationship? And is there commitment? So the trust side is do people believe that you've got their back. Do they believe this is a safe strategy? And the commitment is, are they prepared to act on it and do something? And without that trust and commitment, nothing's going to happen. And that's the blind spot. What I found through my research is people didn't quite understand, how do you develop trust? What are the conditions that the leader needs to create, where the franchisee feels safe in making that commitment to spend money, time, energy, to do what the franchisor is asking them to do. Because as you know, Stan, you can't tell a franchisee what to do, or you can try, but all that's going to do is breed resentment. Um, you're going to get a rebellion on your hands because people bought into the franchise often because they want to be in business for themselves, but not by themselves. It's a great saying, but that means there's an assumption I'm going to have a certain amount of independence. You're not my manager. Manager, so don't try and, and control me. So we've got to lead through influence rather than control. And that's what the psychological leg is largely about.
1: So when you began the Institute, how did you go about that? What did you do? And did Brumbys Bakeries become your first client as your laboratory to try to prove up what your research was discovering? Spot on, Stan. I think this journey, a lot of consultants and advisors
2: have been on, they they cut their teeth within a company and then that company then becomes their first client. So yes, when I decided to go out on my own, at that time, Stan, I wasn't sure whether I only wanted to do franchising. I was certainly wanting to explore people in business and Brumbies were my first client and they were great and they allowed me to try out some of my ideas, but I started to, you know, to get other clients and the big breakthrough Stand was, there were two actually. One was I ran a course on communications. I called it franchise communications. And I had 30 franchise or founders and senior executives in a room together. We were up in Queensland in Australia. And for a day, I I facilitated discussion. I shared a few thoughts. This was in the early days where there wasn't a lot of franchisors coming together to share best practice. And so from what I could see, this was the first time that a bunch of franchisors had got together being facilitated in an organized way so they could have conversations on very specific topics. And the room was electric. And I could just see the opportunity when franchisor executives come together to share their experience, their problems, their ideas, how powerful... that was because they were they were all non-competing and I think they were all amazed. I was amazed and they said, we've got to do this again. So that really started me off on the journey of education and our approach to education is 50% will deliver concepts, techniques, tools, and 50% is facilitated discussion and I think that's a nice blend. So that was one big light bulb for me, standing the journey. And the other one was when the head of the Franchise Council of Australia, at the time it was called the Franchise Association of Australia and New Zealand, said to me, this was in the early 90s. For those people who were around at the time, there was a move to cut out middle management. There was like a revolution going on across the world. And there were thousands of middle managers that were being retrenched and were getting these redundancies. And so there was a big influx in franchising. It went through a real boom in that, those early 90s. And the head came to me and said, we're getting a lot of problems where franchisees feel they're being overpromised." By the franchise, or and there's a lot of conflict that's exploding in the sector and would you be able to write a book about this? And so I put down my thoughts and that book just was so popular. They kept selling out and having to reprint it. And that was also a revelation for me about the power of putting your ideas down into a book and making it available to other people. So as you know, I've written several books.
1: Was yeah. that Profitable Partnerships? Was that the first book?
2: Well, actually, what happened, Stan, was Managing the franchisee or Relationship was published in 1992. And that was published by the franchise... Association of Australia and New Zealand, and they kept running out of stock. And I kept getting franchisors saying to me, How can I get hold of this book of yours? And they kept changing staff, and I wasn't happy with that relationship. So I decided to rewrite that book. But the managing franchise or franchisee relationship was written for franchisors, and I thought it was time we wrote a book for everybody. So my vision for profitable partnerships was to write a book that a franchisee could read and go, This makes so much sense. Thank you, this is great, very helpful in understanding how I can work with my franchisor, but the franchisors could also read it and go, this makes so much sense. It helps me understand how I can build a better relationship with my franchisee. So I actually locked myself away for three months, stand toward the end of the 90s to say, how can I pour out my heart and my experience and my research into a really easy to read book that would be suitable for franchisees and franchisors? And that's where Profitable Partnerships came from.
1: And then when was it and how that the intersection of Rupert Barkov, the late Rupert Barkov, one of franchising great lawyers here in the U.S. and around the world, but Rupert saw you someplace down under and brought you back to the U.S. as a must-do. It was an imperative. He came to us at the Southeast Franchise Forum and said, I've made a discovery, and we've got to bring this <laughs> man to the U.S. He's got to be heard.
2: Well, uh, it's very interesting, Stan. What happened? Rupert did come to Australia, but we never met because we kept missing each other, and I got this message. We had a stand at the, the convention in Australia with my business, and there was a note saying this this lawyer from America came, he'd heard about you and he wanted to meet you, but we never physically got to make contact. So I didn't know what he looked like. And I'd forgotten all about that. It was just kind of an interesting note. I thought, oh, that's, uh, I must follow him up sometime. When I went over to the IFA convention in 2000, I'd just written Profitable Partnerships and I took 300 copies across with me and I was giving them out to people at the convention. This is at the IFA convention because I thought I'm interested in getting feedback from the American market on the suitability of this book. And that night, you know how they have the taste of franchising? And so there's about a thousand people in this giant room and I walked in. I didn't know anybody and I was wandering around and I just thought, oh, maybe I'll just have a conversation with someone. And there was this guy in the middle of the room, you know, with little horn-rimmed glasses with a bib on eating some ribs. And I thought, he looks like a funny sort of an interesting character. I'll say hello to him. So I just wandered over and said, "Uh, hello, my name's Greg. And he looked at me and he said, are you Greg Nathan? And I was sort of stunned and um, yeah, (laughs) are you psychic or something? And he said, I'm Rupert Barkov. I've been following your work. And so for the next three hours, we were just locked in the most interesting discussion about franchising. And that's where that relationship commenced. And at that time, Rupert said, I'm going to bring you back to talk with my franchise or clients and with the Southeast Franchise Forum. And so that's how it all started, Stan.
1: And I remember as though it was yesterday when Rupert brought you and we put together a program at his offices and invited the Southeast Franchise Forum's membership to come and be exposed to the teachings that you. Had provided, and then I got smitten by that. I made it my mission to get you a space at the IFA convention as a speaker the following year, which Mm, which mm. we kind of accomplished. Um, And I was
2: very grateful, Stan, for your support. I still am. That was another breakthrough for me because I was extremely nervous just before that forum started. Rupert and I were sitting on the side, and the guy from Ukovia Finance was. They were sponsoring the session and he was going on about, he's got 3,000 staff and, you know, and so on and so forth. And then um, Rupert leant over to me and he said, don't muck this up. <laughs> I said, no pressure, thank you. <laughs> and then, uh, I, then Rupert got up to introduce me and he said something like, you know, we've got 300 lawyers and we do all this legal work specialising in franchising and then he introduced me and I stood up and I said, hi, I'm Greg from Australia and I've got three staff. <laughs> And so I was feeling a little intimidated, but I knew that I knew what I knew and I knew the depth of the research that we'd done with my team of psychologists in Australia. And I could just see the room lighting up and you were in there, Stan, as I was presenting my models and my research. And it was at that point, people were coming up to me at morning coffee saying, this is amazing. We need this. This is the first time we've seen someone make sense of our experience in a scientific evidence-based manner. And it all took off from there. Very very grateful, Stan, to you and to, to Rupert for giving me that introduction to the USA market.
1: When you see something that is groundbreaking and it's revolutionary, that's the only thing to do is to think about how am I going to help this message carry further for the good of the brand? And the brand, of course, is franchising. We're talking with Greg Nathan, the Managing Director, Founder of the Franchise Relationship Institute in Melbourne, Australia, and we're going to come back and carry the conversation forward and we're going to chat about what COVID-19 has looked like in the world of franchising globally from Greg's perspective and moreover we're going to get into a discussion about what's ahead and some of the trends that Greg is forecasting post COVID. Greg Nathan, my guest and we'll be back right after this.
0: Franchise Today will be right back. But first, a word from our sponsors.
1: We are all familiar with Vistage, YPO, and EO. Well, now comes Zor Forum, a somewhat similar type of executive group, but this one comes with a twist. Zor Forum groups are exclusively for franchisors. Imagine a peer group for sharing and networking on a platform built exclusively for franchise executives. Zor Forum members are afforded unparalleled access to best practices and and some of the brightest minds within the franchising world through regular meetings and a dedicated communications platform. In this post-COVID world, a franchise-specific mastermind or peer group is an endeavor worth making time for. Zor Forum groups of six to 10 will bring leaders together that are in similar situations, but with exclusivity in terms of their competitive set so that each can openly help others benefit from their respective knowledge, perspective, and experience with no fear of competitive loss. Network, learn, strategize, and remain motivated along your journey. Join a peer group, not just any peer group. Join the only one designed for emerging franchisors. Join Zorforum. Learn more at Zorforum.com. That's www.Zorforum.com. And the conversation continues with Greg Nathan, all the way down under in Melbourne, Australia, where he heads the Franchise Relationship Institute and has been sharing with us a great deal about his beginnings in the world of franchising and the intersection of psychology and the business model of franchising and how he has built his entire career around filling the void between those two that seemed to exist when he first got into the business himself. Greg, I want to move the needle forward and talk some about the conversations I've had with many friends. Franch- franchisors and the impact that COVID has had on their own businesses, some good, some bad, some ugly. But nobody that I know of would have seen more than you, perhaps, across market sectors and over continents around the globe. Why don't you spend a few minutes with some of the things that you can share with us about your perspectives on what you've learned, and then we'll move forward to what you see ahead. Thank you. It's obviously been quite a traumatic year,
2: even for those who have been doing well. For instance, one of my clients is a bakery group called Baker's Delight, and they've been doing exceptionally well. But the franchisees are risking burnout because of the speed and the quantity uh, that they're having to produce in terms of products at a higher rate, and with all the COVID restrictions and disciplines they've had to introduce into their businesses. So it has been um, a very stressful year. And so, one of the things I have noticed is a greater awareness around this whole issue of mental resilience, mental health, mental toughness. And it's something I've always been passionate about because, Stan, one of the things we discovered very early on in our research, in I'll just talk from the franchisee's perspective for a moment, is that to sustain success over many years, and most franchise agreements are running on average for seven years, but many franchisees you know, are running their businesses for over 20 years. It's a marathon. You've got to have high levels of energy and resilience. And COVID has certainly tested that out in people, but the people who have been, more successful in adapting, have been able to stay calm, think clearly, not panic, and to have those high levels of energy or what I call vitality. So that's been something that's been validated. But I've also noticed on the franchisor side, Stan, franchising is always stressful for the franchisors. And in my books and things, I often will devote a chapter to franchisor stress because they're being criticized a lot. They're having to juggle a lot of different balls. But the stress of change and having to adapt um, has really worn a lot of franchise or executives to the bone. And that's caused health problems. It's caused relationship problems in their families and so on. So this has been a very
1: interesting area. This has been a year more than any, hasn't it, Greg, that has tested leadership as well in terms of franchisors being pushed, as you say, to levels that were heretofore. Never, ever anything like this has been experienced by anyone, much less the franchisor who, as you say, is always under stress to begin with. Mm. But leadership isn't just at the top. is it? Doesn't leadership need to prevail from the top down? throughout the organization and how has that looked to you from your point of view Mm.
2: Well, everybody is a leader in their own right. Um, everybody's responsible for an area and good leadership is about igniting that passion and that feeling of responsibility that people want to do their best in their particular realm of responsibility. So one of the things that good leadership understands in whether you're a franchise or executive or you're operating at the franchisee level is that it's all about relationships and being able to build relationships of trust and commitment to get people to do the things they need to do. Um, so everybody's focusing on the areas of that they can add the most value. So we call it building supporters. So I'm going to talk about this at both the franchise or in the franchisee level. Remember I, I told you earlier on about when I ran that first course and the franchise or executives came together and they lit up about being able to share. Well, what I found through this year is that those franchisors that have got together in in cell groups or mastermind groups, Groups or whatever you call them, we've been running some forums here with a lot of facilitated discussion. That's been tremendously helpful at two levels. One is it gives people emotional support that they feel that there's someone they can share. That old saying, a problem shared is a problem halved just basically talk about how they're feeling and get validated that other people have similar feelings. It's normal. It's okay. So that's been quite powerful and to get encouragement and give encouragement, but also that they're able to listen to each other at a strategic and commercial level about what's working both in terms of marketing, finance, technology, but also what's working in terms of how they're managing their franchise communications. And I would recommend everybody who's listening to keep those networks alive, those Relationships alive, set up conversations with people who you respect and who you get on well with if you're a franchise or executive. And that can be done very effectively through Zoom or these other platforms. But make sure you're also keeping your franchisees connected with each other and obviously with the field consultants and so on to keep those supportive relationships strong. Because during times of stress and uncertainty, the relationships do get strained. You've got to put more energy into your relationships. Relationships, but you will also get a tremendous return on investment if you've got those solid, supportive relationships. So that would be one element of leadership, Stan. And one thing that we were always recommending, but it's it's even more important now, is the CEO catch-ups, where the CEO is on a call. It could be a Zoom call, and there's about 10 minutes of that catch-up should be the CEO or senior executives sharing relevant information, relevant updates, relevant changes, and then opening it up to conversation. With where people can ask questions and they're responding live for about 20 minutes of Q&A. So the session shouldn't run for more than a half an hour. And I'm recommending they should be held at least every two weeks, if not weekly at the moment.
1: What would you deem to be the most significant change that you've seen coming out of COVID-19 that probably won't change again? In some cases, we're going to say that this is really not the new normal. We're going to find the old normal again or some semblance of it. But I think too that there are things that are fundamentally changed that aren't going to change back? What would some of those be in your mind?
2: I wouldn't want to be too prescriptive on that, Stan. I think in different industries, obviously, the way products are being distributed is shifting. There was always going to be a move online. Like eight years ago, I predicted that the move to online shops was going to impact significantly on the franchise relationship because those networks that are based on bricks and mortar distribution, when the franchise all starts setting up a shop, initially, it may be taking 5%, 10%, 15% of the network sales. It was always obvious that was going to grow and franchise networks needed to come up with a fair and reasonable approach to how we're going to split the sales to the customers in the local areas. But obviously, COVID has sped that up. And so online has gone through the roof in terms of customers wanting to buy online. It's not going to probably stay at the level it is at the moment, but it won't definitely won't go back to where it was before. So I think franchisors are going to have to think more carefully about... how do we divide the profit pie fairly between franchisees and franchisors in terms of profit margins when customers are buying in a mixture of online ordering and local
1: distribution? Does that make sense? Absolute sense. So I don't think this is a fair thing to ask somebody who's got an MBA in psychology to look into a crystal ball. But I'm going to do that anyway, because I'm just irreverent, Greg. What do you see ahead?
2: I've always been passionate about preventing franchisee failure. And I think there's some lessons here. In Australia, there was a parliamentary, a government inquiry into franchising. It started two and a half years ago. And it was due to the actions of some large brands that weren't doing the right thing. And there had been a lot of complaints and there was a media investigation over it and so on. But what came out of that was over the years, a lot of franchisees had failed. You can't prevent failure in business, but I think they'd been exited in a bad way out of the business. So I think the lesson is from all that is when failure occurs, as it will inevitably happen in all areas of life, not everything goes well, the franchisor has a responsibility to do what it can to help that franchisee exit with dignity and exit in the fairest way possible. Now, that may be emotional support. It could be some ex-interviewing, some counselling, just to make sure that they don't just dump them and move on um, and leave these people who are financially and emotionally traumatised at the failure of a business. Why I'm saying this, Dan, is that there are going to be business failures. This rate is going to go up for obvious reasons. Um, I think franchisors should take an interest in facilitating discussions where stronger franchisees are going to be wanting to buy up. Up the weaker franchisees. And so you're going to see probably an expansion. Of the existing multi-unit owners are going to be probably buying up some of the weaker territories or units around them. But I think the franchisors should be doing what they can. I know they can't control the transaction, but to see that the franchisees that are outgoing are looked after as best as possible. And in some cases, there may be new partnerships formed where a weak franchisee may bring in a, a stronger franchisee as an investor in their business, but stay on to run the business. So I think we're going to see some more of these blended business arrangements occur. That would be the first one. I'm not sure what your thoughts on that would be, Stan.
1: I think that you're, again, you're spot on. I I look to you to be the professor in this instance. And I think that you're spot on with that first assumption. What else mm. do you think is ahead for us?
2: You know, we mentioned earlier about the online sales. There's certainly going to be far more online communications. Ten years ago, we closed our physical premises at and we went to a virtual format in terms of how I run the business. So I've, I roughly had about ten staff over the last ten years. They've all worked from home, and and I've known this can work really well. And a lot of my clients have said we must try that sometime. Well, they've all been forced into this, so there will definitely be people working from home more. And communications franchise advisory councils now experiencing how much more efficient it is to run an FAC meeting on Zoom than it is to fly people in, taking them out to dinner, spending a day discussing things, they can get through their agenda far more efficiently in you know one or two hours. So I think the Franchise Advisory Councils, a lot of these uh, special project groups will continue to operate through Zoom, and I think that's a very good thing. Also, a lot of regional meetings will be blended. You'll find that there'll be a mixture of uh, Zoom or, or other platform catch-ups, you know, 20 to 60 franchisees getting together regularly in facilitated conversations. You've got Breakout rooms that can be used very effectively like a round table. If you are having a live conference, live conferences will definitely continue, but we'll definitely see far more use of the virtual format for communication. So that would be another prediction
1: I would make. What else do you see on the horizon that you might share with the audience today, Greg? Look, the younger
2: people, I was talking about this about eight years ago, the millennials, are starting to reach that age where they're taking more responsibility. Now we've moved to another stage where millennial leaders are now taking charge of divisions. So you'll have head of marketing, head of operations, will be a 35, 36-year-old person. And this is terrific. I mean, these are young people with energy and a lot of tolerance of diversity. They're very open-minded. However, they've grown up in an age where there hasn't been a lot of verbal communication. They've grown up texting and emailing and so on. So I do think that millennial leadership generation needs to be mindful that they need to have conversations with franchisees, not just rely on electronic communication, just text-based communication. Uh, So uh, that would be one prediction that that leadership group are stepping up more and more and we'll need to be returning to probably communication skills training on how do you have a conversation with someone that's meaningful, that's efficient, but it, it keeps that human connection going because it's hard to convey emotion when you're just writing. It can be done, but it's more skillful. And also the conversation can go off track and be miscommunicated. So I think people need to be more mindful to get on a Zoom call or use the phones. I'm sure you're finding, the same. People don't answer their phones these days, but I think franchisees, being a slightly older generation, systemically in most franchise systems, do appreciate a conversation rather than just being texted. So that would be another trend and something to watch out for.
1: What about the younger generation coming up behind the new management teams of millennials? What about the Gen Xers and the youth yeah. that are today well, buying franchises? That's
2: a that's an interesting flip, isn't it? Because if you have an older operations manager who likes to converse and you've got younger franchisees, they just say, look, just send me a note. Probably as you get more younger franchisees coming into groups, there may be a, a shift in the way communication takes place. And that's going to be a very interesting world. I'm 65. And so I do feel a little bit out of place sometimes when I'm in a a group of younger people and they are communicating in a a different style, but that's life, isn't it? Every generation has its own nuances and its own culture. So that will continue to evolve as uh, the younger generations start to
1: take charge of the world. You at 65 possess something that I've always deemed to be one of the most necessary ingredients in any franchise relationship and second to money. I'm talking about passion and passion to me is universal, whether it's generation of texters or zoomers or get on the plane and flyers and go do it the old school way. Passion is still one of the most necessary things I think that make for a successful franchise relationship. Would you agree? Mm, Oh yeah.
2: And that comes back to some people. I, I don't actually see myself as being particularly passionate. I'm just me. But I think when I discovered franchising and the potential to empower small business people with business systems that are going to help them to be successful and the opportunity to have relationships with like-minded people that can help them grow and develop, that still ignites my passion today. I got my team together for our wind up for the year and I invited a previous staff member to come into the meeting. She hasn't been with us for 10 years and she sent me a nice text thanking me for everything that I'd done for her. And and so she came in and had a a bit of a chat with the current team. She said, you know, the Franchise Relationships Institute does spiritual business. And I thought, whoa, that's an interesting observation. But she said, what you guys do is this beautiful combination of humanity and values and trying to do good in the world, but also helping the world to be commercially successful. and And I think that's what really drives my passion, this idea that you You can make money, you can help people to be materially successful, but it doesn't mean they need to sell out basic human values and goodness, which is extremely important in life. And I think COVID has really got us all questioning and getting back to what's important in life, family, relationships, good, wholesome values telling the truth. This is a big conversation that's been going on. What role does truth and fairness have in life? And I think this is another trend, I think, Stan, that there's going to be far more focus on fairness in franchising. The younger generation are very big on this, that they believe that things should be fair for everybody. And I have to say, from a neuroscience point of view, fairness is Programmed, genetically programmed into our brains. And it's why people get quite upset if they feel that they're being ripped off or they're not being treated fairly. So I'd be paying attention if I was a franchisor to making sure not only that you are doing the right thing, but you are seen to be doing the right thing in terms of fees and in terms of uh, making sure everyone's getting... You know, I, t- I talked earlier about the internet, that everybody's getting an equal or a fair share of the pie.
1: Greg, we've come to the point in the interview where time is creeping up on us. And it's the moment where I must ask you if there's anything that I haven't asked that you wished that I did.
2: Yeah, I think Franchise Advisory Council, Stan, Uh, I'll just make a final comment about that. I think these are evolving to a much more sophisticated level. I think there needs to be clarity over these councils are advisory. They're not decision-making. However, smart franchisors really listen to the advice and the insights of their franchisees. And so I just encourage franchisors to keep these consultative committees going, whether you've got specialised product groups or centralised FAC, and reinvent your ground rules, your guidelines, your purpose and make sure that you are bringing the franchisees into the conversation early when you're implementing change, because it's going to be far easier to get that buy-in if you really understand the mindset of the franchisees and their concerns. So that would just be another thing to watch out for in, over the next 12
1: months. Brilliant. Greg Nathan, can't thank you enough. Yeah,
2: that was a lot of fun, Stan. Thank you. Thanks for including me.
1: Well, I hope you took notes, because there were pages and pages of take-home value in that timeless conversation with the iconic Greg Nathan. That's a wrap for today. I'll be back again next week, and we'll do it all again. Until then, I'm Stan Friedman, wishing you the best, the very best of all things franchising, and franchise today.